Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Thinking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben. Welcome back to another Great Debates episode today. We've done a few of these so far, and if you're new to them, the idea is that we are comparing great players, great comparisons in NBA history by focusing on peaks, by focusing on when players were at their best, and trying to size them up. And today, as you may have been able to tell from the show title, we're going to look at another set of shooting guards, a very similar set of players through NBA history, and that is Clay Thompson, Ray Allen, and Reggie Miller. What are the big ideas worth discussing about these players? What are the key points to know about their careers? We're going to talk about a lot of numbers, a lot of statistical trends. When teammates were different, we're going to break down their stylistic trends. These players, of course, come from the same family. That's why I wanted to do it this way. And so we'll talk about what makes them similar, where they're successful, but also what makes them different. Uh, At the end and throughout, I will provide certain areas where I come to conclusions, your mileage obviously is going to vary on who you think is better in certain situations. But the goal here is to really lay out in one place all of these need-to-know things about these players. That's the idea. My focus is on championship equity. That is to say, how good is the guy on the court? What kind of impact is he having on the court? And is he helping good teams win championships. These players are all very similar, so they sort of max out in having their value apply to championship-type teams. We won't have to talk too much about the difference between floor raising among these players, although it will come up a little bit. And remember, as we go through this, there's two key principles of comparison that we want to carry through every episode in this series. The first one is never judge a player in his best or worst situations. Uh, that means, you know, what stats make them look good, what make them, what makes them look better, how do coaches and scheme impact. And then the other thing, which is really sort of the bread and butter of building up the strengths and weaknesses of a player at his peak, is to compare the player to himself. What changed from the surrounding seasons? Where did he get better? Where did he drop off a little bit? Thinking about that relationship between age and improvement that happens as these players, I've talked about this before, with late offensive peaks as guys age, they might lose some athleticism, but they gain some guile. All of these players have relatively flat peaks compared to their surrounding seasons, meaning that they didn't have a super high peak and then come down or ramp up too heavily. And so that makes picking their very best seasons a little bit more difficult, and I wouldn't say arbitrary, but there's a lot of nuance that we're going to talk through where some players, you may have a three or four or five year window that's very clear with a ramp up on one side and a drop off on the other side. But in the case of these players, once they sort of get going, uh, they don't get 
too high, in my opinion at least, and the decline is gradual enough on the other end that we can talk about four or five year windows as their best windows, but they're still pretty similar six, seven, eight years out, as we'll see with Ray Allen and Reggie Miller, who have retired. And Clay Thompson just finished his 28-year-old season last year. It's possible that we see something similar with Clay uh, as he winds, you know, down his early and mid-30s. Usually by the late 30s, you're kind of, that's it. But um, we might see something very similar with Clay. So I'm going to tease right out of the gate where I think each of these three players stands out amongst this trio. So I think the best scorer, I mean, if you listen to the uh, 50th episode of Thinking Basketball Podcast last week, it was all on updating and, and getting into the nuance of the greatest scorers ever. And so you'll know that Reggie, I hold Reggie in the highest regard among scorers. We'll talk a little bit more about why when when stacking up against these guys that so many people think are similar or better, um, who's the greatest shooter of all of them. We'll, we'll get to that at the end for a bonus round. But I give the edge to Miller in scoring. It's I would say I'm comfortable. It's a clear edge for me. In some cases, it's larger than others. We'll talk about it. In terms of defense, Clay Thompson, and specifically man defense. And we'll talk about how these guys stack up on defense a little later on. I'm going to go through the players first, primarily on offense, and then we'll come back to defense. But if Reggie has scoring, Clay has defense. And then Ray, not Clay, Ray, Ray Allen's advantage here is his on-ball game, his handle, um, his ability to go places and probe with the dribble, and the capacity to play some level of pick-and-roll basketball that he did at times throughout his career and a lot more in Milwaukee where he was put on ball and asked to kind of orchestrate a little bit more. Probably the best passer of the group as well. So that, um, well, certainly the best passer when it comes to on-ball passing. Okay, let's start with Clay. Clay uh, came into the league and in his second year in 2013, he started to show signs a little bit uh, as Marv Albert might say, and that still only had him up around maybe 18 points per 75 possessions. When I talk about scoring rate a lot, I'll talk about per 75 possessions. That's just a per possession uh, count, as regular listeners are familiar with. And so, okay, that's close to like it, what we would think of historically as an 18-point-per-game score. The efficiency uh, isn't really there yet. And in 2014, uh, he, f- he gets finally positive efficiencies about scoring rate of 19 plus one percent the passing through these years is kind of the same there hasn't been a lot of change in clay thompson as a passer if you're familiar with him today so for me in my passer rating metrics it's a a rough scale of one to ten we're talking around a four Uh, that means he can make some basic passes when he comes off the curls he you know if you're familiar with the golden state offense um, when they trap him off a curl he can hit that pass but passing not really the forte of any of these guys. As Clay is growing here, uh, coming into his prime, which I think is really the last five seasons, 2015 to 2019, uh, the turnovers start to come down in 2014. That's in his third year. And so at that point, now you've got uh, three-point shooting coming along. You've got uh, turnover efficiency going down. You've got all the hallmarks to say the decision-making 
Um, and all of the little things that make one comfortable excelling in their style of play are there. And so we get to 2015, and now we get prime Clay Thompson. What does that look like? Well, in 2015, he gets to the line more. He takes close to five free throw attempts per hundred. Now, remember that number for the rest of this episode. Because five free throw attempts per hundred, that is not a lot of free throws. But it's up from, you know, two or three per hundred, which is where he was in his first couple seasons. And I think it's a clear indicator of success on the court in 2015, really delineating Clay's prime. And of course, with his improvement that season, with Steph Curry's improvement that season, with the coaching change that season, and really with the emergence of Draymond Green as a force, Golden State, you know, went from a very good, dangerous team to a championship level dynastic team. This was part of it. And now let's talk about the scoring, because these guys are driven primarily by their scoring value, uh, their ability to space the court, their ability to move around, stretch, hit threes, hit shots off curls, things we'll dive into deeper in a second as we go through them. But Clay's scoring in those two seasons, a scoring rate of around 25 on plus 6% efficiency, and we had the same thing around 24 on plus 6% in 2016. He shot 44% from three in 2015, 2015 was probably his best shooting season across the board. And with all of this, uh, in my model, my box plus minus model, his regular season value peaked in these years, 2015, 16, 17, at around plus four. If you recall from earlier episodes, the grade A superstar shooting guards in that metric will be closer to something like plus six. And that's intuitive to me. I don't know how you feel at home listening, but um, you know the guys we talked about, Wade, Kobe, those guys um, are a level above, I think, in overall impact. They get closer to MVP discussions, or in the case of Harden and Kobe, they each have an MVP. These guys are a level down. These guys were typically, at least in my view, talking more about all-NBA. You know, Are you a low-end all-NBA? Are you solid all-NBA? What kind of value can you provide? So plus four in that metric, we'll come back to that a couple times as we go through these guys and just see how similar some of the numbers are across the board. Similar thing with other impact metrics like augmented plus minus, a little under plus four in this stretch as well. Okay, so some numbers out of the way. What happens in 2017? 2017, of course, Kevin Durant comes. And when Kevin Durant comes, Clay basically goes from the second option to the third option. But that's a weird way to put it. I actually think we can do better than that. We often have this concept of this guy's number one, this guy's number two, this guy's number three. It doesn't always work that way. It's not always that clean. I think the more practical concepts, and I've certainly discussed this as we've gone through analysis before, is that do you have a guy who's the primary driver of your offense? Like Kobe and Shaq were both primary drivers of the offense. We can study what happens when one of them goes off the court and they have less help per se, or they're completely unshackled and they have the freedom to just go at it every time. Like we see some of these models with James Harden, 
Russell Westbrook recently, a couple years ago in Oklahoma City. Like, we've seen that before. But what we're still pretty much most interested in when we look at roles here is, are you the primary initiator? Can you carry enough of a heavy load to have things revolve around you and have secondary pieces revolve around more of your offensive sets? Or are you capitalizing and dependent more on what your teammates are doing? Are you playing off of them more? That's more of a, of a second fiddle usually. You know, maybe, yes, you have a post game and we may throw it into to you in the post, but that's not our primary look. That's like a secondary look or a late clock look or whatever it is. So in Clay's case, one of the big things that I mentioned earlier is he doesn't get to the free throw line often. Well, why is that? Most of his game is spot up. He'll spot up in transition. He'll get to spots in the half court. And of course, that beautiful excessive motion offense that Golden State's been running since Steve Kerr got there in 2015, that allows a lot of catch and shoot, a lot of cutting. Um, yes, there's some handoff stuff, but very good at cutting into open spaces, all those split cuts with Curry and Clay and these guys working together, and then the passing. Uh, they're a very good passing team that makes it come together. And this is not to say that Clay will never go in the post. He he will occasionally post smaller players. Doesn't really have like a bevy of post moves that he throws at you, but likes that quick catch using his size and turning over you. I mean, he's a good 6'6 six, six plus. Uh, I believe for years they've listed him at 6'7". Now the NBA is trying to actually measure real heights instead of shoe heights uh, to clear things up. But he he has a size advantage. He has a high release. And so he'll use that. And similarly, uh, he likes the little up fake or sidestep. You know, he'll he'll take that one dribble to the left and launch from the three-point line. So that's most of his game. And as a result of that, um, he is not creating an advantage for easy layups or free throws most of the time. In other words, if you give it to him, he can't break you down off the dribble Um, he can't overpower players easily with size and he can't just get a a step like a quick step first move um, and get going downhill and be a threat to finish at the rim or get to the line the totality of this him not being a great rim finisher going into traffic he uses his body well in like one-on-ones with open space where he can kind of like shield and maintain that advantage with his size But the totality of all this not being a phenomenal rim finisher in traffic or when there's less space or when he gets a step, doesn't have a great handle when he gets a step, is that all of the easy buckets at the rim that he can create for himself and all the free throws go away. And the key one to me is the free throw rate, just the inability to get a lot of free throws. And by cratering that, he, in a way, puts a ceiling on his efficiency. Because it's just the goal, as we talked about in the last episode on great scorers, the goal is to generate high efficiency shots for you as a player as frequently as possible. Now, remember, Clay's efficiency in these years, this scoring efficiency concept that I talked about on the last episode, very similar to true shooting, you're talking about plus five, plus six percent in the regular season, things like that. But that's with him as sort of this sidekick option. More of the offense is running through Curry. Curry had the ball in his hands more. Draymond Green would have the ball in his hands. And so that is with more um, 
of a secondary type of volume. He's carrying a secondary load. What about when he's the number one guy? What about in those years when Steph is off the court? 2015 and 2016, he played over a thousand minutes without Steph Curry off the court. And as you'd expect, the volume goes up. Now it gets close to 27 points per 75. And the efficiency goes down a little bit, as you might expect, to plus 3%. So his free throws are still low. They're still in the same ballpark. The ability to create offense uh, is a little bit higher because he's he's now the guy who's creating all that gravity and the defense is focused on and there's running uh, he's running around and they're running things through. And so naturally the passing load and the shot creation goes up a little bit. Maybe in my models, my estimates, six to seven shots per 100 he's creating for his teammates. That would be a career high for him. He's usually down at three or four in the regular season. And the team offense is okay. You know, it's a offensive rating that's about plus one. It's a, about one point better than you'd expect against the opponent defense in the regular season. Then Durant comes along. And in those years, 2017 and 2019, he gets even more minutes by himself. That means no Durant or no Steph Curry on the court. And the, the scoring volume goes up even more. Now, some of that is scoring volume naturally increases in that period. This is uh, not adjusted for that. But he's up near 28, 29 points per 75, and his efficiency is right about average. So if league average efficiency in these years is 55%, Clay's chucking it in at 55%. And again, the team's offensive rating, not actually very good. It's going down. It's getting worse in those 1,500 minutes. It's, it's 106. League average was much better than 106 during the 2017 to 2019 period. Um, and the overall team on the court was about neutral. So he's playing with you know players that aren't Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, and Golden State maybe looks more like a 500 team with a not-so-great offense. And now, if you're Clay, you're going to look great in points-per-game land. You're going to look great in the people who really like just raw volume scoring. But you keep going up with the volume. The efficiency goes down. The offensive result isn't that great. I don't think it is the hallmark of a high-end number one offensive option. And I think a lot of that comes back to the inability to get easy shots or get to the line or pressure defenses that way. And so when you slide over to become a number two or a secondary kind of option playing off of Curry and Durant, your efficiency can go up. You can take shots you're more comfortable with, uh, specifically on the perimeter or getting easier easier things at the rim off of your movement. And of course, it, it goes without saying that as the number one defenses will throw more stuff at you, they can pressure you, they can make more audibles and adjustments as you fly off your screens and play your game. But when you're a secondary option, tertiary option on the court, you're usually the benefit of those things happening to other guys. So even with that said, Clay's efficiency, never super duper impressive. And I think it's because of this lack of ability to get to the stripe. And to put this into perspective, among Clay Thompson's 25 best scoring playoff games, his career high is 41, game six against Oklahoma City. And so he's got about 25 games at like 27 or 28 points at least. Of those 25 games, the number of times he never took more than three free throws 
is 17. 17 of the 25 games, 68% of the time, he never took more than three free throws in the game. I thought that stat sort of summarized in peak conditions, highest levels, he's got to get his points basically with shots and jump shots. And he's a phenomenal shooter, obviously, and he can get layups and back cuts and his teammates help him, but it's just hard to get spectacular efficiency when it's that hard for you to get to the line. Okay, what about Ray Allen? If I had to peg prime years for Allen, I would probably put them at 2001 to 2006, although again, uh, he's pretty similar through 2009, maybe a little drop off. He has some ankle surgeries in 2007. His ankles bother him in the 2007 season, then he goes to Boston. We'll talk about that in a second. When Ray was at Connecticut in the 90s, that was a period where a lot of players, myself foolishly included because I was not 6'6", emulated the style of Michael Jordan, emulated the style of a lot of these guys from this era, the 80s jump shooters and whatnot, where your, your concept of being a great basketball player, especially as a wing, was the ability to use your dribble to pull up and shoot over someone, shoot at a high release point, be athletic and release at the peak of your apex. And I think I bring that up to say Allen has that in his game more than these other two guys. And I think that's really era-influenced. He has a stronger handle than them. He has that, you know, I've got it on my hip, I'm going to take a one dribble to the left and then quickly stop and pull up over you. I'm going to make a move, get around a corner, get to the elbow, uh, and, and hit a pull-up or something. He has that stylistic look. And it actually, in a way, it diminished as he went through his NBA career and he and the league evolved. But coming out of Connecticut... He was almost more of that style of player than an off-ball genie running around through screens like, say, Reggie Miller was. And so Ray will dance with the basketball more. You can run pick and roll them. You could run point of attack stuff. He had a way better handle. And I actually think this is part of why it took him a little while to get comfortable and successful as an NBA player coming in that 96 draft. By the time he gets to year three in 1999, that's when he really starts to become a clear, positive, good NBA score. 22 points per 75 adjusted for inflation. I've talked about that recently. Plus 6% efficiency, that real scoring efficiency. He's a lower turnover guy. And in fact, in his next season in 2000, the turnovers start to come down even more. And I think this is him learning how to apply his style, more of that Clay Thompson, Reggie Miller, run around without the ball, that style. Yes, he still had his dribble. He still used that occasionally. But this is in Milwaukee. And by 2000, the three-point shooting starts to click. He, that was uh, 42% that season. Really, first time he really hit that like all-time level. And his scoring jumped up again, 24 points per 75 uh, adjusted for today. Adjusted for inflation, that is. You've, you've heard me talk about this adjusted scoring rate before. Anyway, 2001, Ray with a phenomenal performance in the playoffs. He was white hot in some of these games. And he even registers as a slightly po- positive playmaker 
As I said, he's probably the best passer of the group. He's got a little bit more of an on-ball responsibility. And so these overall, those kind of like sexy box score numbers that where we used to look at the slash line and say points and rebounds and assists, those looked better than, say, someone from a similar stylistic mold than Reggie Miller. Miller, of course, uh, never played too much on ball, so his assists were never, you know, three assists a game, maybe four assists a game, and he wouldn't get in there and rebound. And so, okay, if your defensive responsibilities are to rebound a little bit more, and in Milwaukee we let you do a little bit more on ball creation, all of a sudden, hey, your regular season numbers look sexier in that old way of viewing things because you're 21, 5, and 5, or whatever it is. But I think the extra assists specifically, the slight inflation in passing or on-ball responsibilities, I think while it looks like on its face it would be a fantastic thing, I think it's slightly deceptive in this conversation. And let me explain why. On one of the first plays that I saw in prepping for this podcast, it was 2001, Game 6, against Philadelphia, they, uh, the Bucks kind of run a side pick and roll action. Allen comes up off a curl, he catches, they basically get into what is a side pick and roll. And as he comes off it moving to his left, both defenders, and it's a pretty empty, I think it's a totally empty side. I don't think anyone else is over there. And so Allen comes off the pick and roll moving to his left. Both defenders slide with the ball toward him, and that leaves the roll man, whoever it was, Irvin Johnson or something, uh, not that Irvin Johnson, the Bucks, Irvin Johnson, that leaves him open. And it looks to me that you want to feather that pass to the roll man, whether it's a pocket pass as a bouncer, whether you want to make the jump pass, it looks wide open for a moment. But Ray Allen was very inconsistent at making that pass because he's not a great passer. He's not even a very good passer. And so the issue here is that if you're asking Ray to do a lot of this on-ball stuff, then in theory you're taking it away from someone who should be doing it or is a higher-level on-ball orchestrator. In other words, you don't want to run an on-ball offense regularly through someone who isn't that good at it. And so on one hand, the fact that Allen could do this and these other two can't seems like it just should be, without any question, a bonus, a boost, a thing that makes him better than these other two guys. In fact, I've heard historically a lot of people you know, point to the fact that Allen had certain skills with the dribble, not just pick and roll orchestration, but the way he probed with the dribble. He held the ball a lot. He dribbled 5, 10, 15 times in a possession. He dribbled around the court. And then he could get to a shot or make a difficult shot from there as a differentiating factor against a player like Miller. I see it the other way. I see it as something that is seductive, but it actually doesn't really add much value when it counts. And so keep that in your head as we quickly move forward through Allen's career here to get to the Celtics, okay? So in 2001, when he played with Milwaukee, uh, those impact numbers, very similar again to Clay's, actually a little bit better than Clay's. So in my model, he's over plus four. His offensive box plus minus is over plus four. His adjusted plus minus, just a pure adjusted plus minus from Jerry Engelman, plus five. And the team's offensive rating in Milwaukee was like plus six that year. It was fantastic. But one of the challenges of evaluating Ray Allen 
is in this period, 2001 to 2007, he mostly plays on offensively slanted teams. What do I mean by that? I've talked about this before. You can kind of cheat by, instead of playing uh, you know, a bruising big man in your power forward slot as your other big, you swap him out for someone like Tim Thomas, or you play Glenn Robinson at the four. And so there were a lot of times in Milwaukee where George Carl would have Sam Cassell, uh, not exactly a defensive wizard, uh, Tim Thomas and Glenn Robinson on the court together with Ray Allen. And so the idea is perfectly fine. It's just you're slanting things. You're giving up offense, excuse me, you're giving up defense to gain offense. And the hope is that you have a net advantage because you're putting better players on the floor who can kind of optimize their own skills. But that also means that you might be in a more advantageous offense, offensive position and we have to make sure that it's not inflating your stats, if you will, or just account for that when we evaluate you based on your statistical signals. By the way, Allen's scoring during that stretch, around 25 to 26 adjusted points per 75. He was right there for the next few seasons. If you recall, that is ahead of Clay when Clay was on the court with Steph Curry, but that is behind Clay or very similar to Clay in terms of volume when Clay was out there by himself, although Ray does have an efficiency advantage. And I think some of that constantly being able to be plus five, plus six, plus seven percent in efficiency is Allen's ability to get knife into defenses, get into the paint, and get a little bit more at the rim or at the line compared to Clay. What was his free throw rate? Still not great around six, maybe peaking at seven free throw attempts per 100. That's still not very good. It's a little better than Clay, And, you know, maybe he's getting a little bit uh, more in the paint that's easy as well. His free throws per 100 peaked at 7.6 in 2005 in Seattle. Shots created around five to six. Passer rating never really gets more than above a five. All very similar to Clay so far. Now, in Seattle, same kind of thing. We had offensively slanted lineups in Milwaukee. We had offensively slanted lineups in Seattle. In Seattle, they would play like, you know, a lot of Richard Lewis, Vlad Modranovic. Um, They wouldn't play two traditional bigs a lot. And to put this into perspective, I actually was curious. In 2005, they played 6,000 minutes from true big true big men. That's about 30% of minutes from true big men. This is back in a day where most of the time you would play two big men at a time, two true big men. So for, by comparison, the Spurs that year had 38% of their minutes go to true big men. That's the team they lost to in the playoffs, by the way, the Spurs, eventual champion Spurs. And so that means you've got Tim Duncan out there with Rosho Nesterovich. You've got Nazi Muhammad swapping in. A couple years before that, it might be Malik Rose. So Seattle, they short, you know, they slanted this just like Milwaukee. Same thing in 2006. They actually had less than 30% of their minutes go to traditional big men. And then finally in 2007, they got closer to that 40% number that you might expect. um, And the results weren't as great. So you take away some of that offensive firepower and 
2007 is a tricky year as well because Allen had some ankle injuries that he struggled with. They ended up shutting him down at the end of the year, although he did post like a career high in scoring. So I, I don't know how much the ankles affected him. Anyway, when he played with Richard Lewis that year, the offense was plus one and the team played like a 500 team, slightly below 500 team. His offensive box plus minus numbers in my model, all very similar, just under four over and over, you know, three, nine, three, six in Milwaukee, three, seven in Seattle, three, eight in Seattle. So kind of those similar numbers we talked about at the beginning with Clay. We'll see those come up over and over again. You're not going to be able to differentiate too much among these guys with those high-level metrics. If anything, those high-level metrics are saying these guys are really similar. Can you give me a reason to distinguish between them in any meaningful way? Now, I said we would come back to Clay, uh, excuse me, Ray, getting my, my guys mixed up here. I said we'd come back to Ray Allen moving to Boston and what it meant. So in 2008, he goes to Boston. What's fascinating to me about this is not that he now is a clear sort of, um, again, it's not that you're a second fiddle per se, but with the three guys, with the big three in Boston, Garnett and Pierce, all being kind of similar offensive players in terms of usage and dividing the the heavy lifting and the labor there, you know, you're no longer that driving force. You're no longer the guy where more stuff is going through you, or we specifically run most of our sets for you as the primary option. In Seattle, you know, not only did Allen have the ball in his hands more, but then we didn't have the ball in his hands. They were still running all that floppy, coming off down screens, pin downs, curls, all that stuff. In Boston, what stands out to me is when these guys went to the bench and Allen stayed on the court. And yes, he maybe lost a quarter of a step or a half a step between his last few seasons in Seattle before the ankle injuries and coming back in Boston. I think that's fair as part of a physical comparison. It wasn't his peak. And so in theory, his peak, if you took Ray Allen from five years earlier, six years earlier, and you put him on those Celtics teams, these numbers would be different. But again, what stands out is that when Pierce and Garnett went off the court or one of them went off the court, Boston did not think, let's run our offense through Ray Allen. Let's give Ray Allen the ball and have him handle it and create uh, and do a bunch of stuff and pick and roll. They did it a little bit, but even when both of them were off the court, that's not what happened. His offensive load remained similar. It didn't really go up much. He maybe scored 18, 19 points per 75. And I think you could make an argument that some of that was Doc Rivers just wanting a consistent offense and not wanting to restructure something differently off of Ray Allen, but they already had stuff off of Ray Allen with some of the offensive principles fitting into his movement and catch and shoot and things like that. And to me, the takeaway there, it's just another piece of data that suggests you don't want Ray Allen running your pick and roll. You don't want to run your offense through Ray Allen heavy pick and roll. He's just not a good enough passer or attacker in those situations to really collapse the defense heavily, number one. You want to collapse the defense because as you come off pick and roll, you're going to punish them and it's going to be painful. But the second part is that as you make adjustments, the ball handler needs to be able to punish them. And Allen was 
never that good as a passer to me. I think it's perfectly fair to assume Allen from a few seasons before would have had slightly higher scoring with his tenure with the Celtics 2008 to 2011 being those best seasons. Uh, He was still very good in 2011, very similar to where he was in the previous couple years. And I think as a result of that, his efficiency may have been a touch higher. But this was a better look at Ray Allen in that, you know, sort of complementary role. And again, a takeaway is it's not easy to sprinkle in huge amounts of value with your on-ball pick-and-roll stuff occasionally. What about Reggie Miller? One of the things about Reggie Miller that stands out to me is very little wasted movement. There's very little wasted movement in what he does. So he rarely took more than two dribbles. He either shot it when he caught it, took one dribble, or took two dribbles. And those were purposeful purposeful dribbles. Another thing is he was very quick. Not just with his actions, but he was physically quick. He had very quick change of direction when he wasn't dribbling. And when he had the ball, he just had a really quick first step. Triple threat, jab step, and then I'm going to go. And his handle wasn't tight, but he was still relatively low turnover because he didn't try to do too much. He didn't dance with the basketball. He even had a step back when he was younger that he would use occasionally. One dribble, take the step back. Still had that in his bag when he was older. And the fact that he was 6'7 and tall and long, if he felt comfortable getting the release off, he could still take a dribble, usually a dribble, sometimes two dribbles, but usually a dribble uh, to set you up and get into a pull-up or a step back just off the threat of his drive. That quickness, that ability to go by you, was huge and is a difference maker for him as a scorer compared to these two other guys because as we'll get to in a little bit in the bonus question you know who's a better shooter they're all pretty close so it was this drive game with Reggie that helped he also had a mid-range game that he used heavily not just coming off screens back in the day where you could take 18 footers instead of extending the action out to the line but when he took one of those dribbles he would get into a leaner he he could jump off either foot And he was very good at hitting these difficult, these shots that looked difficult, but what he was doing was creating space for himself because he was not an elite, fast twitch, explosive athlete. He was not a powerful, strong guy who, you know, threw his hips into you or bounced off of you or, you know, shoved you aside with his shoulder. That wasn't his game. So he would look for these little areas to knife into or kind of get around you and then jump in the air and lean and that would create the space. And sometimes he even got free throws off of those. But the quickness of his drives got him to the rim. Um, His height allowed him to accentuate contact. Sometimes he could finish there. He wasn't a vertical powerful finisher, but he was a tricky, you know, I'm going to go to the other side of the basket and get a reverse layup kind of finisher. As a result... When he starts ramping up, year three, his free throw attempts go from like 5 to 6 per 100 in 1989 to around 10 per 100 in 1990. And this is the beginning of sort of prime Reggie Miller. I think if we have to hone in on his absolute best seasons, it's probably 1992, 1993-ish to about 1996. And then much like Ray Allen, you can say, you know, 
the next few seasons after that are very similar, but perhaps he loses a li- he he loses a touch of that quickness. He loses a touch of his motor. Those early mid nineties, he could just run around uh, perpetually. It seemed like. And if you're familiar with Steph Curry's movement off the ball, this is the precursor to it. This is truly the precursor to it. He would relocate off of misses. He would run to the three-point line in transition. And transition was a part of his game. He liked to leak out, and he was comfortable using his size and his his wit to get to the free-throw line or finish in transition one-on-one, two-on-two situations like that. He'd make the right pass. He was a guy who would make the right pass and was willing to make the right pass, but was never a great passer. But man, his work off the ball, quick. He'd set you up, go in multiple directions. Indiana would run all kinds of floppy where he could run around on the baseline and get, you know, pop out on different screens. And he used the fact that he was thin and didn't carry a lot of weight. He used it to his advantage with his cuts. And there are things you can do when you cut without the basketball that he was a master at, the little hand fighting, setting you up and sending you in the wrong direction. And let's go back to the top when I said great scoring is about consistently creating high percentage shots for yourself. That's how he set you up. That's how he did it. Sometimes that would be layups. He would back cut you. Other times that would be the one quick dribble to a mid-range shot he wanted or barreling into the paint to get to free throws or relocating, coming off screen, L-cutting, jab-cutting, V-cuttings, you know, just putting you in the off-ball blender and getting wide open for a catch-and-shoot three. What did I say? 1990 is where he gets up to 10 free throws per 100, 41% from downtown that year. Never really gets his passer rating above five in my model. Um, He kind of had decent vision, but like I said, was more about moving the ball to the right spot. The other thing with him as a passer that I think limited him is when you don't have a great handle, you don't have a great set of tools for releasing and making passes quickly. The ball was not in a passing pocket or coming off of, uh, you know, his hand quickly in that sense. But he created shots for teammates. He created a lot of gravity. You can see this in playoff situations. I'll get to it in a second as we move through the years. Um, 1990, another thing that happened is Indiana's offense went from not very good like minus one compared to the league to about plus three. So if league was 107, they had a 110 offensive rating. But it's not until 1993 that Miller really kicks up the three-point shooting. And remember, this was a time where players just didn't shoot a lot of threes. It was seen as a lower percentage shot. No one was doing the math on the fact that it was worth three points, not two. And so in 1993, when he upped his three-point volume to seven attempts per 100... I mean, it still could have even been higher, but that was a shift going from five to seven. That was a big deal. And then over his career, he would up it a little bit more. Much in the same way that when Steph Curry had his 2016 season, it was just ridiculous to take so many threes. But when that's a weapon, when that's an optimization point for you to turn that dial even more, to flex that particular muscle harder uh, made you more dangerous. And that's what happened with Miller here. 1993, his scoring gets up to around adjusted 75. We're talking 24 to 25 uh, points. And again, as we talked about last week, the efficiency, where you like plus 8% here even. These are just regular season numbers. We know he goes up in the playoffs. 
regular season impact metrics. We talked about it. Miller, uh, the lowest of the three by just a touch, plus 3.6, plus 3.4 values like that in my box plus minus model. Similarly, like an augmented plus minus, plus 3.3, plus 3.1, things like that. By comparison, Clay was plus 3.9 in 2015. He was plus 3.3 in 2016. That's augmented plus minus, so that allows us to have a blend of box score and uh, plus minus data that kind of approximates an adjusted plus minus. Ray Allen was plus 3.3 in Milwaukee, and it's very similar numbers in a bunch of Seattle and Boston years. So they're all very similar. If anything, Clay's 2015 stands out, but when you incorporate Clay's other years, he's around plus three as well. That's the regular season. What about the playoffs? The playoffs? The playoffs, yeah. Um, playoffs, we've got Clay Thompson coming in with his best three-year stretch, 2014 to 2016, at around 23 adjusted points per 75, plus 5% that uh, real scoring efficiency that includes turnovers. These are all low turnover players uh, where this uh, kind of this model kind of helps them. This approach kind of helps them. Ray Allen, his best playoff stretch. So Clay was 23, plus, just under plus five. Ray Allen's best scoring playoff stretch of his career was 1999 to 2001, 26 plus 10. But he was on fire in those playoffs. It was a small sample. He didn't play as much as Reggie and Clay. And there's a lot of things we could do to adjust it. But one of the simplest things that I did was just adjust the three-point luck down to his regular season shooting volume. And he turns into about 25 plus 8 in that stretch. And that would still be the best stretch of his career, that 1999 to 2001 stretch. Miller, as many of you know, he gets in the playoffs, especially this 1993 to 1995 period, he's up at 30 adjusted points per 75, plus 12% efficiency. And that really stood out to me on film, re-watching some of these games for this podcast, where whatever series you picked, when the series ramped up, and Indiana was always feisty. Indiana made five conference finals in that stretch. They made a, the NBA finals in 2000. They played a number of really high-level teams very, very well. The Knicks in the early 90s, the Bulls in 1998, the conference finals, even the Lakers in the 2000 finals. They were difficult. They lost to the Magic in 1995 in Game 7, of the Eastern Conference Finals, watching games from that series. In Game 6, Miller was everywhere. He was on fire. He had 28 points in the first half, and he just sliced up Orlando with his off-ball movement. It's easy to watch these games and see him when you when you strip the sort of narratives of those times away and you go back and watch them. It's easy to see him as a high-volume high-efficiency elite scorer running around and doing the things he does. But the other thing that jumped out was like gravity or all of the attention that defenses give him as he's the number one guy. And again, we use that number one term here to think about ramping up load, to think about everything revolving around you, um, not in the heliocentric sense, but in the sense that the offense is slanted toward your strengths. 
So Indiana always had a post presence. Even those early mid ninety years, Larry Brown, uh, nineteen ninety three, did throw it into Detlef Schrempf. He could create from the post directly, or in the ensuing seasons, they would go to Rick Smiths, the Flying Dutchman, big seven foot four guy, and he had a really nice post game, up and under, hook, mid range face up, and they would work that a lot, and they would kind of work the balance between Smiths and Miller coming off of stuff, but. One of the challenges that the Pacers could run into at times is they didn't have great passers. They were not a great passing team. So you see all the the footprints, you see the typical signal of what Golden State had where like Miller would fly off a screen and the big man and another guy would jump Miller and he would catch it and that would leave the screen setter wide open on the short roll and then he'd have a two-on-one heading to the basket, but it would be Dale Davis instead of Draymond Green. And Dale Davis is basically a terrible passer. Didn't really know what to do in a lot of those situations. And so in Game 7 against Orlando, for instance, the Magic just started switching everything, um, doubling all those traps. The big men would step out, much like Toronto did in the finals against Curry last year with Golden State. And so that kind of pattern can be difficult to take advantage of, even though you're creating a lot of shots for teammates or pulling defenses toward you constantly, whether it was Orlando, the Knicks, the Bulls, you saw the same thing on tape during these years, but you still need passers and whatnot to take advantage of it. Mark Jackson was probably their best passer, and I don't really think of Mark Jackson as a great passer. He's not statistically a great passer. I would say he's a good passer. He's a good passing point guard. He missed certain passes I thought at times during some of these key moments in series and so you can have a really successful offense as those Pacers offenses were uh, but I think to really optimize these kind of movement systems where in this case Miller is the number one option you want good passers who can connect and punish the way Golden State did okay I got on a got a little tangent there Uh, where were we postseason scoring so postseason scoring Miller has a clear edge in volume, and he has a clear edge in efficiency as well, even though against Clay, most of Clay's numbers are with someone like Steph Curry on the court. The more you put Curry and Durant and other guys on the court, the less volume Clay has. But as we discussed earlier, even in those situations, regular season or postseason, when Clay is given an opportunity to ramp up his volume, A, it doesn't get near 28, 29, 30. Uh, Reggie Miller land too often and B when it does that stretch in 2000 uh, I think it was 2017 to 2019 where he's averaging around 28 per 75 the vault the efficiency is like 10 percentage points lower so that's why Miller to me has such a clear advantage as a scorer compared to these well definitely compared to Clay I think his advantage over Ray Allen is slightly smaller, but it's still there. Ray Allen probably doesn't have the capacity in basically any circumstance to get up near Miller's volume in some of these key postseason series that he did for so many years in the 90s. 28, 29 points per 75 at like plus 8, plus 10% efficiency. I don't think, I think he could get close, and he was at times in Milwaukee. I mean, that's one of the questions about Ray Allen. He didn't play in a lot of typical offenses through the prime of his career. 
and he didn't play in the playoffs that often in the prime of his career. Let's switch to defense. Let's talk a little bit more about defense. I said at the top that I give Clay the nod defensively. Let's let's break them down. I've done a detailed video recently on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel on Clay Thompson's defense, so I'll point you to that. But to summarize, he's very good on ball. He's versatile. He can guard point of attack initiators in today's spread and pick and roll game, which doesn't just mean shooting guards. It often means point guards. And the ability to switch and play multiple positions, have enough strength to guard the post, uh, is where all of his defensive value comes from, in my opinion, or most of it. Off ball, he can be a little bit sloppy. He's not a great, uh, you know, horizontal or vertical paint helper, things like that. But compared to Miller and Ray Allen, he's probably a little bit better than them, them as well in those areas. I think the next best defender of the group for me is Miller. He's underrated when he was actually a rookie, first, second year. He looked really good defensively. I don't want to call him Tayshaun Prince, but you have to think of that long, lanky, 6'7", quick. Like, he's always had good on-ball defensive tools. The other stuff isn't great. Off-ball, he can take a lot of risks or gamble. He's he's high risk. He gets knocked around too much sometimes trying to flop. or uh, He can get through screens, but other times he'll get buried on a screen and try to accentuate the contact but on ball is probably his strength which leaves him as an overall mediocre defender but for instance you know he guarded Michael Jordan well over the years the 98 Eastern Conference Finals uh, he guarded him well game seven I just rewatched before recording this and he digs in against Jordan has a number of really good possessions against him in the post and so you know, if you look at the way he handles his matchup in a man situation, he's actually pretty good. Do I think he can do what Clay does now and switch and guard quicker guards and all this point of attack spread stuff that we have? Not as well, no. And last, that leaves Ray Allen, who I think is a little weaker than Reggie. He's probably a slightly better rebounder in certain areas. Um, but Ray sort of left to his own devices in Milwaukee and especially in Seattle has bad defensive habits or instincts off the basketball and on the ball he when he was in Boston he was put in situations to succeed with the right defenders behind him uh, even in playoff settings but he's probably the weakest he doesn't have great feet he's the smallest of the three which is a big deal in this case both in terms of you know, strength where Clay has a clear edge, but just length and size. He's probably 6'5 tops. He was always listed at 6'5 with the shoes. And I think that combined with not having great feet or instincts, he's he's maybe an average defender at best in his best situations. I kind of view him throughout his career and throughout the heart of his career as maybe a touch below average as a defensive guard. Of course, this plugs into the larger conversation, which I haven't had yet as of recording this great debate, but we'll probably get to at some point in time, which is the value of on-ball defense versus off-ball defense. I talk about this in the epilogue of the top 40, Backpicks Top 40 all-time list, which is available on Backpicks under the Top 40 tab. And that is the idea that even though Clay's strength is on-ball defense, off-ball defense, the, the total team disruption, things like that are more valuable. And so as a result, Clay's defensive advantage here 
isn't that huge to me. It's I would describe it as clear, and I would describe it as relevant, because the areas that we've talked about on offense, scoring, on-ball, uh, playmaking, movement, um, getting to the free-throw line, all of these areas that are reflected in offensive statistics give Miller and Allen an edge that I buy. But Clay makes up a lot of that edge on defense. Does he make up all of it? Your mileage may vary. These players are, are very close. I'll give you, in a minute, I'll give you my overall assessment of, of how I sort of prioritize these guys. But his defensive advantage is big enough that it matters. It's not big enough that it's a game changer. It's like a point or two points worth of value or something like that. That's a lot, by the way. Two points worth of value can be the difference between you know, a low-level All-NBA guy and an MVP guy. Who's the best shooter? Who's the best shooter of the bunch? Well, strangely enough, Clay Thompson shot 82% from the free throw line last year. Now, he doesn't get many free throws, but in the last three seasons, around 500 attempts, he's at 83.8%. That's the lowest of this group by a landslide. And I don't think free throws are the be-all, end-all indicator, but they're a strong indicator of shooting prowess. In 2015, he shot 41.7% from downtown. Excuse me. <laughs> Let me get my notes right. Since 2015, last five postseasons, Clay shot 41.7% from downtown on 10 attempts per 100. And in that stretch in the regular season, he's about 46% from 15 feet out to the three-point line. Those are staggeringly good numbers. Reggie, when he was 25, shot 91.8% from the free-throw line. Wow. Um, We have shooting data. NBA.com has it from the earliest play-by-play pullings of 1997, 1998, 1999, way back when. Miller consistently shot 44 to 45% from outside of 20 feet. During that time, he was just under 92% from the line, 38% from three on nine attempts per 100, a little bit less, about 10% less than Clay. And the longer stretch here that we've been talking about, 1993 through 2000. In the postseason, Reggie Miller was 40% from downtown on nine attempts per 100. A couple of those seasons had the line shortened by uh, almost two feet, and he was 89% from the free throw line. After his age 33 season, Reggie Miller shot 91.6% from the free throw line. That's one of the all-time great marks, great stretches. Finally, Ray Allen. When he got into his 30s, Ray Allen shot 90.8% from the line. So right behind Miller. Can't believe how far Clay behind how far behind these guys uh, Clay falls on the free throws. Ray's three-point shooting stretch 2001 to 2003, 41.4% on just under 10 attempts per 100. So very similar volume for all these guys. Very similar numbers, if anything. Reggie's three-point shooting numbers a little below. Ray Allen, by the way, uh, outside of 15 feet on the long two-pointers was 41.7% from 2001 to 2003, but but 2006 to 2011, he shot 46% on those shots and 40% on 
from downtown. He was 40% again in the playoffs in his first four seasons in Boston on eight attempts per 100. There's that secondary role limiting the volume a little bit down to eight attempts. Okay, no, no idea if you followed all those numbers. It's a lot of numbers, and they're all very similar. And the shot selection isn't perfectly equal for all of them either, right? Because the thing about Clay is he gets to play off of Steph and Kevin Durant for a couple seasons as well there. And Reggie really has no one to play off of. And Ray, uh, he's in these highly offensively slanted environments. And then he goes to Boston and he plays a little bit off of Pierce and Garnett in his years there. Who's the best of them all? I, th- I think you you can probably make a case for any of them. Clay's low free throw shooting and the fact that he plays off of the other guys throws me off a little bit. And if you consider the fact or consider the stretches where he plays without Durant and without Curry that I alluded to a few times earlier, the three-point percentage does come down by a couple percentage points. For instance, 2017 to 2019, it's at 39% in those 15, 1600 minutes, 38.9% to be exact. So if anything, I think... The easiest argument to make is that Clay is the worst of the three. Of course, that's ironic because given the situation he's been in, he's been able to be over 40% three-point shooting on huge volume for his entire career, which when you look at the table of his stats is just stands out. But I, I do think you could probably make the case that Clay is the weakest of the three by a smidgen, maybe. And then you get into Reggie or Ray. I don't know who I'd choose between Reggie or Ray. There is a there is an element of watching Miller shoot both free throws and the types of shots he makes in these playoff games that makes me think he's the best of them. I'm talking about mid-range, leaners, 8 feet, 10 feet, paint, 19 feet, coming off the curl, up and under. He's really good at all those shots. Like, they look easy for him. But of course, Ray Allen makes crazy shots where he gets to 14 feet and he's got to adjust the height and all this stuff. And he's got playoff games where he goes eight for eight. And when you line up their numbers, their numbers are so similar. So you could flip a coin there. We often ask on great debates, what changed in the playoffs? We've talked a lot about what changed in the playoffs. I think a big takeaway for me is that Reggie Miller demonstrated repeatedly in the playoffs that he had more pressure to exert and that increasing that pressure, even though it was off-ball movement, off-ball activity, catching and being more aggressive with his actions, even if it was only one dribble, that was hard to stop for defenses, for all kinds of different defenses. And his efficiency was just crazy. I think let's leave it at this for these three guys. This is the last pair of questions, and in many ways, the ultimate question to kind of settle the finality of this for me. Who is the best number one option of the trio? Again, we come back to that language, number one option. Who is the guy best equipped to have a primary scoring load asked of him where the offense is built more around him than anyone else and it scales and you're talking about elite postseason offense, championship level postseason offense? plus four or better in the playoffs, if you will. To me, that's that's Reggie Miller. 
because of the things we've talked about. Even though Ray Allen might look the best in the traditional box score, or when you think about the idea that he has more handle and a little bit more diversity. And the reason is because when you ramp up Ray Allen on handle and diversity, offensive diversity, you know, dribbling the basketball a lot, pick and roll options, more point of attack stuff, the offense doesn't actually get to where Miller's offense probably does. I mean, Miller didn't play with phenomenal offensive teammates, and yet over and over and over again, Indiana's postseason offenses were really good. They were really good. They were like championship-level offenses. That's why this team was so difficult to get rid of in the playoffs, even this 1993 series. They were like a 500 team in the regular season. They play the top-seed Knicks. They lose in four. That fourth game was a dogfight. They won the third game. This is like every time they get into the playoffs, they are very difficult to eliminate because they can't slow this action down, even with Vern Fleming, Pooh Richardson, LaSalle Thompson, on and on and on. Now, are there some constructions where you might want Ray Allen as your number one guy because Miller was such a such a weak lead ball handler? I think there might be. I don't know what they are off the top of my head. Imagine just a situation, I guess, where you didn't really have a, a competent lead guard or you only had one and you had to switch to, you know, needing a backup point guard from your key guy. In that case, I think these guys are all close enough, at, le- at least Ray and Reggie are close enough at their best that there's some team constructions where you may want Ray Allen instead. As we said, Clay lacks the offensive game to pressure offenses at high efficiency. You're not going to get that same level of elite, resilient playoff offense built around his movement game, mostly because of the lack of driving pressure, lack of free throw pressure that we talked about. Okay, but what about the best number two? Because that's really, really valuable too. And in many ways where all three of these guys are getting so much of their value, we don't expect them to be the number one offensive threat on a perfectly constructed team that wins championship after championship. So more of the championship equity for these players is coming in that quote-unquote number two spot. When you can play off of other guys more, it could be 1A, 1B, that's okay too. But you're playing off of another really good offensive player. Who would I take there as the best number two? Hmm. My hunch is to go Reggie again because of the demonstrated efficiency. In other words, he's like the perfect quote-unquote number two guy for his era on offense. You just want to pair him with a, another good post player, another good point guard, or another good wing. You let him run around. He's incredible and in spot up. Um, any kind of pressure from someone else in transition, he runs to the line as a release valve. And I think he's the best of these three guys, as I said, with the movement. And it's very easy to see how on the right team construction, he could have just been a devastating number two. Exactly the same way Clay Thompson plays off of Curry. But again, I think when Miller, even a little bit later in his career, when he was asked to drop the volume slightly in some seasons where, say, Jalen Rose was there and they were feeding Smiths and they had Travis Best having the ball coming off the bench as a as a jitterbug score. All, whatever construction the team had, Chris Mullen, when he was in his first season there, um, you know, took some of the off-ball possessions 
from Miller. His efficiency is always so high because he's so skilled as a shooter from different levels of the court, three-pointer, mid-range, and getting to the line, drawing contact, and then hitting those free throws at like, you know, 90, 91%, whatever it is. So I have the highest confidence in him maintaining that super high efficiency plus 10 efficiency if his volume goes down to 22, 23. The other thing is he's so active, I'm not sure how low his volume ever goes. I talked about this on the All-Time Scores podcast last time. Now, when Ray Allen was in Boston, again, not peak Ray Allen, his volume was like 19 points per 75, 2009 to 2011. And the, that real scoring efficiency, plus 6 to plus 8%. So pretty close. You can imagine how peak Ray Allen could be pretty close there. And then I think Clay falls behind. Remember, his numbers at his best were like 23 plus 6. He has a lot of like 23 plus 3, stuff like that, in the playoffs. So the efficiency is a little lower for Clay. All of that, to me, makes Clay the weakest offensive player of the bunch. But remember, this then that defense makes up for it. And on these high-level teams, getting that, whatever you think it is, half a point, three-quarters of a point back makes this really close. For my money, I think Reggie Miller, probably the best peak, Ray Allen. You could flip a coin almost. The, the number of years they have are so similar. And I hope that's the bigger takeaway is that A, all three of these guys are pretty close. That's why we're doing this. And B, especially Ray and Reggie can get into splitting hairs. It gets weird to me to say, boy, Reggie Miller's peak was way, way better than any Ray Allen peak you could you could argue or vice versa. Clay is probably the one that's a little bit behind, but he's in the same ballpark. I hold Clay not too far away from these other guys. And I've talked about the offensive reasons why the limitations and and things in his game that prevent him from driving the same scoring value as the other players. But, of course, spacing, shooting, movement, very good scorer, and the best defender of the bunch. So not far behind. Uh, I think that is it. That is everything I wanted to say on these three players. One of my favorite type of players to talk about incredibly scalable incredibly important really really important to have high level number two options Um, really really important to have players who don't eat up possessions waste a lot of time dribble around take bad shots and these guys for the most part don't do that so interesting and fun to talk about hope you've enjoyed this one if you want to support this podcast patreon.com slash thinking basketball that's where you can sign up support all these endeavors that i do of course if you're interested in getting more of the numbers that you heard throughout this podcast those are available to patreon subscribers at the insider tier or higher i've got all sorts of uh, historical databases that we share going back to 1955 you can always help by dropping a review or a rating in the iTunes store or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. That is it for this episode of The Great Debates. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end, and especially now in quarantine lockdown times all over the world. I hope that you are having a great day. <laughs>